We are in Acts 19 today. Uh, again, picking up right where we left off last week, and today we'll be unpacking the second half uh, of this chapter. And so we ask you to grab a, a Bible, a phone, something with the word on it, uh, and open it up so you can see the word yourself. Uh, so you can get there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. <clears throat> it's in the New Testament. Uh, in our text today, then, Paul is... Um, Paul's preaching of the gospel has proven to be a threat to the silversmith and to others who make idols for a living uh, there in the city of Ephesus. And it's become uh, this entire identity of this, this community. Uh, and so we're going to see how this goes down. We're just going to jump right into the text, start reading. Uh, we'll read just the first portion to start with uh, verse 21 through 27. <clears throat> and then we'll pray and, and get into it. Verse 21, chapter 19. Now after these events... Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia, Nicaea, and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. <clears throat> About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from <clears throat> this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only in this trade of ours, that our, this trade of ours may come into disrespute, <clears throat> but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And that she may even come, <clears throat> even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. The grass withers and the flower fades. <clears throat> Let's pray. Lord, thank you for another week to gather in this building and to sing and to pray and to speak and to hear your word. As we look deeper into this text that, um, that looks at very real, very obvious idols, we ask that you would help us to, to know ourselves and to rightly understand our own heart's tendency to bow down to idols we've made or purchased or sought or received in one way or another. We ask that you enlighten our minds to, to believe and to understand your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this passage begins with a little bit of a travel info. It's one of those things you think, why is that in there? Um, you know, Paul is basically telling us who's gone where and what they're doing. He sent Timothy and Erastus over to Macedonia uh, we know from other texts in Scripture what's going on here is he sent them out and they're collecting gifts from, from these various churches. And he's going to go back to Jerusalem and Judea and to give it to the churches in need. And, and so maybe it's just a little picture of, of why that's in there is to, to put it all together from some of the other letters he, he writes. Uh, the remainder of this passage then uh, shows really this disruptive nature of the gospel when it comes into a culture that is just saturated with idolatry. Uh, if you remember... Last week, our, our text ended with this wonderful phrase. We read it and we're just amazed. It says, the word of the Lord <clears throat> continued to increase and to prevail mightily, right? Praise the Lord. Uh, and it is wonderful. But, but that also means that it's having an impact on, on the culture and the economy. And so not everyone who, uh, who sees this happening was thrilled about the good news of salvation being spread. And, and, and so we're going to see that in this text. Now, Luke often uses this phrase, no, no little, right? Um, here he says, there was no little disturbance. And then a little after that, he says, the shrines of Artemis brought no little business 
It's almost like he doesn't know the word big, you know. Um, <clears throat> there was a big disturbance. It brought big business. And so, uh, you know, that's one of those things. And he's, and he's saying, this is a huge deal. Uh, and the issue was this, just to, to make sure we understand this real well. There was a silversmith. Uh, that's someone who makes things out of metal. Uh, and his name was Demetrius. And Demetrius's job was that he made little bitty uh, idols out of metal. That's what he made. And this was a big deal in Ephesus because uh, hundreds of years ago, about, about 600 years before this, uh, a meteorite fell to earth nearby, and, and the town clerk makes reference to this a little later, but some thought that this meteorite looked like uh, the image of the goddess Artemis. And so as a city, they ended up building this, this temple to her, to Artemis. And, and not just any temple. They built this huge temple. There were 121 pillars. Each of those pillars were 60 feet tall. That's like six basketball hoops if you were to stack them on top of each other. It was 425 feet long. It was 225 feet wide. That's bigger than a football field. It was by far the biggest building in all of the Greek world. In fact, it was seven times larger than the Parthenon. It's huge. Uh, it was later called the seventh wonder of the world. Um, in Houston, where I grew up, we had the Astrodome. And I don't know if they ever talked about this outside of Houston, but growing up, it was the first dome, the first time they'd ever put a football field or a baseball field inside of a building. And so it was always, uh, you know, it was, it was this huge thing at the time. It was, it was no small dome. Uh, and, and it was so big that they actually called it the eighth wonder of the world. And as a child, I thought this was a real thing, like we actually have the eighth wonder of the world in town. Um, <clears throat> And full disclosure, I still consider it the eighth wonder of the world. <clears throat> um, but anyway, they, they built this giant temple. And so people would come from all over. They'd travel, and it became this destination uh, where they would come from great, great distances to worship and to make sacrifices. And they would stay places, and they would eat things. And, and so this really drove the economy. And so then inside the temple, they built this giant statue of the goddess Artemis. You know, bigger than that Johnny Call statue that we have down in City Park. Just this huge statue. And now, Artemis, in, in, in case you're wondering, <clears throat> Artemis is the goddess of fertility. That's what they believed. And, and she was depicted as, as this woman who, <clears throat> um, rather than being able to nurse two children, could nurse 25 children. If you know what I mean. Um, and she was also... Therefore, the goddess of business, because all this fruitfulness and, you know, regarding, you know, harvest and stuff actually led to great, great wealth. And so she was this, this goddess of, uh, of, uh, of business as well. Uh, in fact, in the temple, it, was fo it functioned like a bank. People would, like, leave their money there because it was a safe place uh, and come back and get it later. And, and so then these, these idol makers, like Demetrius, they, they made these little smaller versions of different sizes. You know, you could get the large or the small or whatever. Um, these smaller statues, and they sold them in, in, in a similar way that you might go to, to Paris and buy a little Eiffel Tower. Or you might go to New York and get a little Lady Liberty. Uh, only hopefully, God willing, at no point do you ever think you're going to bow down to the Eiffel Tower and worship it or Lady Liberty. Um, and so these little, these little amulets, they were believed to bring good fortune. And the people would set them up in their homes and make these little shrines, and they'd actually bring offering to them and, and speak to them in, in this vain hope that, that it might bless them in response to the way they've treated this small little hand-carved idol. Um, and so what happens on this day is this, this pent-up frustration, which likely has been building for months and months as they've been seeing the gospel spread, finally just explodes. You know, Demetrius loses it. 
Um, and so he gathers together all the other craftsmen who are making a living by, by creating idols. And, and, and I, I kind of like to think of them. You can see in the title there, uh, the Idol Makers Guild, uh, as they come together for this common goal. And, and Demetrius is angry, and he gives his speech. He's angry at Paul because, because Paul is pointing out something very obvious to people. And they're particularly upset about this phrase of Paul's that, that he's saying, God's made with hands are not God's. That's, that's the kicker. That's the part that really has angered them. And it goes right to the heart of the issue because he's saying everything that you think is important isn't. And that's highly offensive. Um, Isaiah 44. Uh, the prophet mocks the idea of an idol there. Uh, you know, you think about what Paul's saying. At least it's not absolute mockery. Isaiah, but Isaiah <clears throat> he points this out. He says that some guy chops down a tree, and with half the wood, he makes a fire to warm himself and to bake himself from bread. And then with the other half of the same tree, he takes the wood, and he carves a god, a false god, and he bows down in worship. And Isaiah's point and Paul's point um, is that this way of functioning is absolutely ridiculous because you don't worship what you made. See, if you made an idol, you are the creator, and it is the creation. And so you don't worship something you've made. You worship the one true God who made you. The entirety of Scripture warns us, warns the, the church and every generation against uh, worshiping idols instead of God. I mean, think about it. The first two commandments deal with this. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall, make, uh, you shall not make for yourself any graven image. That's 20% of it, right? Right off the bat, the first two. Leviticus 19.4 clearly states, Do not turn to idols or make for yourself any gods of cast metal. And then it continues. It says, I am the Lord your God. First John 5.21 instructs Christians saying, Little children, keep yourself from idols. Psalm 135.15-18 warns us saying, <clears throat> The idols of the nation are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust them. And, and honestly, we could spend the rest of our time here just looking at verses that warn us against that. Uh, so many more. But what becomes so clear in the scripture is that God teaches in his word. Um, what God teaches in his word is absolutely antithesis. Uh, that is the exact opposite uh, to the basic way of life for the people in Ephesus and this culture. Uh, and so there's this collision that happens between the gospel and what is the culture of the day. Um, Demetrius has this very well-organized objection. You can't complain there. He does a good job with it. He gives three reasons that the gospel is dangerous to the idol makers and to the city, the culture in general. And the first thing he points out is we're going to lose money. If people stop worshiping idols, uh, they will also stop buying idols. And that means we're not going to make money. And then he widens his concern with the second issue. He says to the level, you know, to the level of city, he's appealing to this sort of slippery slope argument. And he points out that, that Paul has preached this all over the region. This isn't the only place he's saying this. And so eventually, people are going to stop coming here. They're going to stop caring about the temple of Artemis. And it's going to result in a whole lot less tourists or pilgrimers or whatever you want to call them. People coming and spending money here. In other words, if we allow this to continue, if we don't stop this, people, it's going to crush our economy. And finally, he, he says he's concerned that the goddess may lose her place of adoration in the midst of the people. You know, finally, third on that list is we've got to look out for the goddess. Um, there's something there that he really believes this, I think, on some level. 
And, and so the fear of this, this crowd is um, it's based on money and, and tourism and, and prestige of their goddess. Uh, let's read a little further. Verse 28, and we're going to see how this unfolds. <clears throat> it reads, When they heard this, they were enraged and, and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so the city was filled with the confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Articus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the, the Asiarchs, uh, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, who the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they re recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all just cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So this mass of people don't respond particularly well. Um, it's not real surprising, right? Um, it's exactly what we expect. They just start chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It's, it's kind of hard for us, I think, to understand um, just how important Artemis was for this community because uh, we don't see worship and idols in the same way. But let me put it this way to try to help you understand this. Uh, can you imagine if a, if a pastor came to Manhattan and started preaching that K-State football is idolatry? No one should have anything to do with it at all. Um, then imagine, what if people start agreeing with him, right? Uh, that people stopped buying purple shirts and jerseys and bobbleheads. That they stopped going to games in the stadium. That people stopped traveling into the city from other places to attend these games and the economy begins to suffer. You can kind of imagine that, right? It's a little too close. Um, you might find the Purple Makers Guild very angry. You know? And gathering people together in support. Let's get rid of this guy. Let's get rid of these people. Um, maybe shouting something like, Great is Snyder of Manhattan. Now, sports absolutely can be an idol of the heart. But I'm not really saying K-State football is any comparison to Artemis like that. I just want you to understand, uh, because sometimes we only look at it from one perspective, I want you to understand how some in Ephesus might feel very different than you or I would feel about the gospel actually transforming the culture they were in. Um, and so mob mentality sets in, and they start just grabbing anyone associated with Paul, like, you know Paul, we're dragging you and taking him. Uh, and we've seen this before in other cities. This time it's Gaius uh, and, and Aristarchus. Um, and, and Paul is worried for them. And he tries to get to the theater and he's going to come in and he's going to defend them. And, and other Christians stop him. Verse 31, you see there, this is pretty interesting. The, the Asiarchs, that's the word Asia Asiarchs, uh, were men of wealth and influence. They were elected to promote uh, worship of the empire. That was kind of their role in life. And yet Paul has become friends with them so that they persuade him to stay away from all the commotion going on in the theater. Um, John Calvin speaks on this passage and he points out that if they hadn't have stopped Paul, if Paul had gotten to the theater, more than likely, based on what we know about Paul, he would have spoken up and said something uh, and gotten himself killed in that moment. And, and so it's worth you know, taking note here that Paul has, has friendship with those who don't believe the gospel, so much so that they want to protect his life and they seek to protect him, even though they don't agree with him on this. Um, personally, I find 32 pretty entertaining too. It's, uh, it's kind of like Occupy Wall Street or something. Um, people are shouting stuff and they're mad and, and yet it says, 
Most of them did not know why they had come together. Um, when I was in elementary school, I, you know, I, most of the students rode their bikes or walked to school. We were that close to it. And it was a different era. Parents didn't come with you. They just sent you out the door and hoped you made it. Um, and I remember once in a while, school would get out and, and someone would be saying, there's a fight at the corner. There's a fight at the corner. And we all knew the corner to go to. Uh, and we'd all just flock to this corner and we'd be like, yeah, who's going to fight? And, um, and, and we'd get there and just start kind of staring at each other like, who's fighting? Anyone's fighting? Uh, and, and more often than not, nobody's fighting. And we're all standing there. No one knows why we're here. We don't know who started it. We have no idea what's going on. We just showed up because we thought, hey, there might be a fight to watch, right? Um, that's kind of what's going on here. Uh, a small group has grown into a large group on the way to the theater. Ironically, they're in the theater just to see the show, just to see what's going to happen here. They have no idea. Um, and so the Jews, and, and this is awesome, the Jews just, they push forward this man, Alexander. That's, that's my middle name. That's Beckham's middle name. So it's kind of this family name. I remember the first time I read this, I thought, ah, I have a biblical name. I had no idea. Uh, and you're thinking, what's he going to do? What legendary thing is he going to do? And he motions with his hands, and everyone's silent, and they're quiet. What's he going to say? You know, what's my legacy? Nothing. They don't even let him speak. Nothing. Um, and they don't let him speak because they realize he's Jewish. He doesn't worship Artemis. He has no stay in this. And they don't let him speak at all. Um, and so what do they do? They go back to chanting, Great is Artemis of Ephesians. Great is Artemis of Ephesians for two hours. Two hours they shout this. And it just kind of cracks me up because that's pretty much how protests go together. You know, happen today. Anger and confusion and then just repetitive chanting because we don't know what to do. Um... All right, look at this last portion of our passage. It's starting in verse 35. It's mostly a speech by the town clerk this time. And then we're going to consider how this applies to, to our life today, right? Um, so look with your eyes. I'll read with my lips. Verse 35. Uh, and when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied... You ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If, therefore, Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring the charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Ah, finally a voice of reason, right? The clerk, he speaks up and he calms the crowd and just consider God's providence in this. Here is a man who worships the false goddess of Artemis who stands up to defend the children of God from this proverbial, you know, lion's den. See, there are, there are laws uh, at this time that forbid stealing or destroying shrines or from the temple, things of that nature. You couldn't do that. And um, we kind of have laws like that too. Like I could, I could tell you, you know, your TV is not a god. And hopefully that doesn't surprise you. But I could tell you that and you might be upset with me, but when you call up, you know, Riley County Police and you're telling them, hey, this guy says my TV is not a god. Um, they're not going to file a, a criminal report because no crime's been committed. Now, I would break the law if I came into your house and I stole your TV and I walked out with it. Uh, or if I showed up with my Louisville slugger and, and beat it to bits. That, that would be breaking the law. But the same thing here has happened. These, these Christians in Ephesus uh, have not committed a crime. Now, the clerk also says in this that they're not blasphemers, right? And blasphemer means to speak irreverently about the goddess Artemis. 
Um, and you kind of think, well, I don't know if that's true. It seems Paul's done so, right? Uh, in, in this moment, anyway, and in the clerks, to the best of the clerks' knowledge, this must actually be the case. Uh, because we know that Paul certainly did speak irrelevant, irrelevantly about idol worship back in Athens when Sam was preaching a few weeks ago in Acts 17. Uh, Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Um, but certainly the clerk must not have heard that speech yet. Now, the clerk manages to send them all home without further incident, and he does so with this, this Jedi-like efficiency, you know, like, these are not the Christians you were looking for. Uh, and, and they all go home, and, and it's, it's, it's beautiful because no one ends up getting beat or anything like that. And I, I, I love his reasoning here at the end. Uh, he says, these Christians have not broken the law, but, but we, we're on the verge of breaking the law, um, of actually breaking the law because we're starting a, a riot and there's no reason for it. And so just go home, and they do. Um, so that brings us to the end of the text, but think about this. You know, wait, how do you actually apply this in our lives? You know, um, in their culture, idol worship was just so woven into the culture so much so that the, the gospel was a threat to their economy. It was a threat to their values. It was a threat to their identity. It was a threat to their absolute way of life. Um, is that true of American culture? Um, you know, do we have idols that are, are precious to us? Uh, maybe it's better if we, if we take a moment and just consider some idols, you know. Think about it. When was the last time you identified an idol? idle in your own hearts and, and just confess this is not right? Like, is that a question we're asking? Is that part of our like, natural thinking through our life? Um, Paul showed people their idols and, and their lives changed so that they sought to turn away from idols. Um, there was this action connected to it. You know, one of the major scandals of the American church today is that Many say, yes, I believe in Jesus, I'm a Christian, that's my profession. Um, but then we make absolutely no, no effort to walk away from idols, right? Um, and I say they, but, but really all of us could say we, we, we do not confront idols in our heart. Now, before we get into just a few common idols, I, I want to remind you that some things are not in and of themselves an idol. Uh, they're only made so when we have elevated them to a place uh, of importance in our life that only God should occupy. And I tell you that so that you'll be careful that you don't label um, some of God's good gifts an idol uh, simply because you've seen it become an idol in your life or, or someone else's life. And so I might, I might ask you today, and I will, uh, to examine your own heart, to, to see things, to see, you know, is, is sports an idol to you? Is career success an idol to you? Are children an idol to you? Is, uh, physical beauty, an idol to you. Um, but remember, I don't know the depths of your heart. And, and each of those things can be good things in their own right. And so it would be wrong for me to label them as idols and, and call for their, their abolition. Um, but let me also remind you that um, we don't just call people away from idols. It's a very, very dangerous thing to do. Uh, it's not a good thing to do. Um, because we don't just call them away from idols, we call them to a very real and gracious Savior, Jesus Christ. Because, you see, the church in many generations and many cultures has redefined the gospel into some ethical restraint or moral system. Uh, but the gospel at its core is not just walk away from, from an idol or, or some evil practice. The gospel is a call to come to Jesus, 
and to be forgiven of your sin, and including the sin of, of loving idols in our life, right? Um, Paul would have done the Ephesians no favor if all he had said was stop worshiping handmade dolls of Artemis and then just left it, you know, I'm out of here. Um, because they would have found 10,000 new idols to worship immediately. Uh, don't believe me, our, our culture is absolutely proof of that. Every culture is absolute proof of that. I mean, you'd be hard-pressed today to find anyone in the 50 states, see, we'll include Alaska and Hawaii, um, who today worships Artemis. You just won't find someone who does. Maybe some weird hipster that does it ironically, but you're really not going to find anyone who does that. You know? and, in fact, you'd be hard-pressed to find very many people who worship anything handmade uh, that they claim is a god, anything that resembles it in the same way, but we are without a doubt a nation of idolaters. Think about it. Um, Wilhelmus, which is a good name, although you, you did better, uh, Brackle wrote in the 1600s, it is idolatry to serve anything which is, by its very nature, not God. Uh, more importantly, Matthew 4.10 tells us, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And yet we find so many things, and we put them in the place of God in our lives. Uh, things that we wrongly believe will give us meaning and identity and satisfaction. You know, um, I, I thinking about this all week, and I was thinking, you know, if you had to identify, um, you know, what's the goddess of Artemis in our culture? The biggest, most culturally influ influencing idol in the United States in 2016. And, and the more I thought about this, you know, it's not K-State football. Uh, the more I thought about this, I, I have to say it's autonomy. Um, the idea that the individual has a right to unrestrainedly decide any and everything for themselves. I decide what's right and wrong. I decide what constitutes marriage. I decide proper sexual ethics. I decide what gender I am. I mean, you realize 15 years ago, that would have been a satirical SNL skin. And now it's a very serious issue in our culture. You know, the most basic framework right now seems to be, who are you to tell me who I am? And that's a problem. When, when we who are the creature are telling God who is the creator, I am who I am. Um, we're simply denying that, that God is there at all. And so if autonomy is the goddess of Artemis, then you can understand why any speak of, of Scripture being a higher authority than autonomy in our culture is a threat to our very way of life. And so there's that question, you know, will we go on uh, to worship the idol of autonomy or will we worship the one true God who supersedes our autonomy but gives us eternal grace and forgiveness that cannot be found at the temple of autonomy and cannot be found anywhere else? Now that's cultural, right? That's the kind of thing that's easy for us to look outside the front doors or back doors, I don't know what you call those, uh, <clears throat> and, and kind of say that's, that's their idol. Um, that's mostly an observation of, of someone else. So, so what about our idols? What, what, are, you know, what are the ones that we are most susceptible in the church? And now um, my fear then is when we read a passage like this that we're just going to go from here more equipped to identify other people's idols, right? To make us more judgmental. Um, and the truth is we're already pretty good at that. You know, ah, their child is definitely their idol. She is so concerned about her reputation. I think it's an idol for her. Um, you know, we're good at that kind of thing. Let's not be good at that. Um, and, and while there is certainly a, a place in evangelism and discipleship to lovingly help people identify their idols, uh, this morning I just want you to stop and consider your own hearts, our own idols. Where, where are those? What are those? Um, and so this isn't meant as a guilt fest, 
Um, but I hope you'll do some time, take some time to think about your own life, your own heart. What are the things that are, you're most susceptible to, to, to treat like an idol in your life? Um, so let's consider a few things. First, um, you know, entertainment, relaxation. Uh, our children being successful at sports or academics, career, um, just family life, social standing in the community, romantic relationships, political or social causes, uh, ministry success or growth. Um, you know, uh, here's one that gets me, um, our phones. Think about it. Uh, how many of us have just become slaves to the idol of being connected via our phones, right? Uh, you hear the, the sound of the notification, and it, it's the temple of iphonius or Androidius, hopefully not Windows 10-ish. Um, you know, that the bell has been rung, and it calls us, come and worship. You know, we even bow when we're looking at our phones. You know, you can see me from the back. I look like I'm worshiping. Um, that's the way that goes. But, you know, let us, let us work with the tools of our generation and not, not worship them. Okay, put down your phone. And I'm talking to myself here too. I absolutely am. Put down your phone because it will not bring you joy and satisfaction. And, and this gives us a good framework to even think through idolatry because Christian, the solution of the situation is not just to get rid of your phone because then I can't call you. Um, right? The solution is, is not that the phone is, is just evil in and of itself. The solution though is to regularly evaluate your relationship to the phone. Where, where is this phone? Um, you know, be careful that it is a tool that serves you and not an idol that has enslaved you and robbed your wife and your children and your friends and anyone else who wants to talk to you in the moment of your mental presence there at that moment. Now, some idols, other than the phone, demand a, a sacrifice, right? And they, they slowly take so much more than you ever thought you'd be willing to give to this idol. Uh, consider this, you know, every pornography website on the internet is a shrine that just beckons you come and worship. You know, bring yourself as the sacrifice. Don't go. It's a false God promising satisfaction. It demands your heart and it offers in return only emptiness. Man, idols are all over the place, aren't they? Um, anything can become one. You know, our, our idols might just be living in a safe neighborhood. Some of us, our idols are, you know, I just, I just want to live in a nation that holds the exact same moral and political and philosophical ideas that I hold. Uh, that becomes an idol. Tim Keller says we can identify what's an idol by how we respond when we lose it. For instance, if your um, the boyfriend or girlfriend breaks up with you and you're sad, like really sad, that's, that's okay, that's normal, that's heartbreak. Um, but if you want to go throw yourself off the, you know, the 177 bridge into the Kansas River, uh, that boyfriend or that girlfriend is probably an idol in your life. Or, um, you know, if, if we know what God desires for us in his word, and it's very clear, and, and we thoughtfully choose the opposite, whatever you chose is very, very, very likely an idol in your life. Now, I'll give you some examples, but... Um, I've given you some examples, rather, but really my, my hope is, is that you're just, you'll take this and you'll go and you'll pray um, to God who actually knows your heart, that, that, you, you know, that he'll reveal to you your own idols, that, that you'll evaluate your life to see what idols might be, might be just hidden in your heart at this moment, and, and that you'd be able to take these appropriate responses as the Spirit works in and through us. Um, so there'll no longer be idols. Now i got two more things, real, real short, and then we'll be done here. First, 
um, it's this. There is, there is freedom. I don't know if you know that. We talk about idols, and it tends to be so much of this, oh, I have to get rid of that. But there is so much freedom when we stop worshiping many false gods and only worship the one true God. Um, my daughter, Sadie Piper, I have her permission to quote her today, uh, a few months back during a discussion put this very well. Her, her words have really just stuck with me all this time. Uh, she said, I like having one God because lots of gods would all be telling you what to do and that would get confusing. Yeah, you're right. You know, every idol of our heart is pushing us in some new direction. Do this, go here, you know, make this your priority, some new direction. But Jesus just calls us to simply come and follow him by grace through faith. There is so much freedom in the simplicity even of just knowing God is my God and I shall follow. Uh, Embrace that simplicity of worshiping one God. Uh, Last thing. Um, This event happened nearly 2,000 years ago. Uh, And one of the things we see twice happen in here is that uh, the people were shouting. They were so enraged, and they were shouting with conviction and and loud, and they really meant it from the bottom of their hearts. You know, for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Over and over and over again. Well, today, Ephesus is just a bunch of ruins. Nobody lives there. The giant statue of Artemis has been torn down. It's gone, you know, made by human hands and destroyed by human hands. Uh, The temple site itself, the one I described, is the biggest building in all of Greece. Um, You remember, 60 feet tall, 425 feet long, 227 feet wide. Um, It is gone. Today stands one single column that was put back together by bits and pieces so that tourists would have something to take a photo of. That's all that's left. It's all rubble. Uh, But our God was not and is not made by hands. And our God now and forever stands mighty and powerful. See, the same gospel that, um, that was setting the Ephesians free is still bringing forgiveness and redemption to people all over the globe today as they turn from false gods of all sorts to the one true God whose sweetness is rivaled by absolutely nothing in all of creation. Nothing. That's why we don't just turn away from idols. We turn to Jesus because he has proven his love for us, uh, even with his death on the cross. Um, So we turn to Jesus, who saves and satisfies uh, our longing hearts, both now and forever. Let's pray. Lord, help us to know what idols our hearts have bowed down to. So not in our own strength, but in your strength, we might turn away from them. So we can root them out of our lives and find real satisfaction in Christ. Oh, that we might turn or turn again to you who are the living God. A treasure not made by hands and that is incorruptible and eternal and more amazing than anything else we might look to for joy or satisfaction. Oh God, you are God. May those words be true in our hearts and on our lips. We ask this in the name of our our gracious and wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.